Now I would like to introduce our speaker, Peter M. My name is Peter, I'm a recovered alcoholic. Uh, grateful to be alive and sober and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. And again, thank uh, all the trusted servants at this group uh, for doing all the work you guys have been doing for this meeting and keeping it uh, as it has been uh, for the last six or seven weeks. Grateful to be here. Um, God separated me from alcohol on June 23rd, 1988. I'm a recovered alcoholic and I'm grateful to be an alcoholic who's recovered. Um, I don't know if I'd be here if I was an alcoholic seeking recovery. I don't know if I'd be here, certainly not speaking, if I was a recovering anything. But I'm grateful for uh, getting recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Um, my separation from alcohol came June 23rd, 1988. Uh, but I was still recovering. And I was still uh, in the bedevilments. And I was still running around Alcoholics Anonymous untreated. And uh, where I've been brought to as a result of the 12 steps, which took me to a God of my understanding, and uh, be able to talk to you experientially about this God is to a place called Recovered. And I'm very grateful for that. Um, my journey started, like most of us, with the first drink and ended up, you know, in handcuffs and car crashes and in and jails and, and institutions. Uh, that wasn't the plan the first time I got drunk. Um, and the, the plan in 1988 when God separated me from alcohol was not to stay sober either. I had a willingness to stay sober, a willingness to go to any lengths that came out of the gift of desperation. Um, but the plan was, I'm probably going to drink again, probably going to use again, and uh, not have a life of recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, but something interesting happens to every one of us. <clears throat> People show up that we normally don't see. They can be at meetings seven days a week, and you can be at the same meeting, you don't see them. But when the mustard seed of willingness awakens, where we can move a mountain, those same people suddenly come alive and we can see them. And they've been talking the message, pre preaching the message, and looking for newcomers, and being the best example of this big book until my eyes are open and I can see them. A city that's lit up is put up on a hill so you can see it. And a lamp is lit, it's not put on the ground, it's put on a table so it lights up the room for everyone who's in there. But I need to be looking. I've been lost many times driving, and you're driving down a road, and you don't know what's, where I am, what I'm doing. The GPS is going sideways, and I don't know what to do. And up ahead, I see traffic lights or a storefront. And I say, finally, there's somebody there. And I follow, and I pull over and ask for directions, and I get home. Alcoholics Anonymous is like that, but I have to be seeking. And in 1988, uh, when I first got here, I was seeking. Um, but I was untreated. And I was sober, not putting a drink in me, certainly not putting any other substances in me. Uh, but I was untreated because I didn't have the 12 steps yet. And I was praying to a God, a God I grew up with, which had a lot of conditions on it. This God had conditions on what my life was going to look like. And I bottomed out in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I came into Alcoholics Anonymous with all these different personalities. You get one drunk, he's got 45 personalities, depending on the weather and the time, right? And that's how I showed up to Alcoholics Anonymous and told me to pray. 
get a sponsor, go through the 12 steps, and then something happened. After I bottomed out in Alcoholics Anonymous, almost six months being in AA, I bottomed out again. And it was just as painful as coming out of a bottom drinking. Now I had no medicine. I had nothing to shut the voices in the head down. I was raw and still bottomed out, making meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I wondered what was wrong. God's going for me again. I'm in trouble again. And I was in a lot of trouble. In fact, looking back on I was in worse trouble than I came to the realization uh, on that day, December 22nd, 1988, when I says, oh, my God, I'm thirsty and I need a drink because I can't take living sober. Prayer will bring death to all the identities that don't come from God. And what I found out in my prayer life and in my step life and in my meditation life, that certain things started to happen. The voices in the head and all the attachments to who I'm supposed to be started to die. And I was again stripped raw. This process of recovery will con con continually strip us down. Soon as we start to accumulate, my experience, as soon as I start to accumulate stuff, attachments... Not a job, not a relationship, unless it's damaging to me. But as soon as I start to accumulate attachments to stuff, God will rip it down. Because nothing can stand in the way of me and God. He won't allow that if I'm seeking him. If I'm not seeking him, I'll have a whole load of stuff standing between me and God, and I'm wondering what's wrong. December 22nd, 1988, I was stripped raw again. God got in the way of that drink that day that I was going to go drink or anything else I can put into my body because the pain of living sober was too great. And uh, I showed up at a gentleman's uh, uh, doorstep, and he just started to sponsor me. But we really didn't do any work. And uh, he let me in, and I gave him my tales of woe, what I was experiencing by just going to meetings. I had a lot of other distractions besides meetings. And I wanted to stay sober. And he said to me words I'll never forget, and I've shared these words from a million podiums. He says, where are you with God in the 12 steps? And my question was, when do you start the steps? And he answered, when you stop throwing up, you're late. He didn't tell me, let's make 90 meetings in 90 days, because that would have killed me. He didn't say, put the plug in a jug, because I was looking for a jug to drink. How I stayed away from a drink that day is purely divine intervention, because based on my track record, I should have been drunk that day. Because it was that, pow that painful and that powerful. But I kept praying. I just kept praying, and I showed up at this guy's doorstep. He didn't give me a hug and tell me, how am I feeling? You know, I love you. You love me. You know? <laughs> you know? He didn't do any of that. He was, he was what we would call a bulldog, a hardcore. And God bless him, because those are the type of men God kept putting in my life. Not the touchy-feely AAs, and that's fine. Not the hug kind of guys, and that's fine. He just told me straight up and down what, what I'm doing wrong. He didn't say what I was doing right. What I was doing right wasn't going to save, wasn't going to uh, uh, help me at that moment. It was what I was missing, and that was God. See, this illness will disguise itself better than I can even fathom. It'll have me believe I'm practicing these principles in all my affairs, and I am so far from home. It'll have me believe I'm a spiritual giant, I've become Moses, and I'm so far from home. It'll have me believe I'm going through the steps and I never even cracked the big book open. I don't get why we have a big book that works, but we have 4,000 other ways to do the steps out there, and we go to that stuff before we go to the big book. It makes no sense, because I don't know about you, when I was into dry goods or liquor, I went to the best stuff. They're over overdose in Harlem, that's where I'm going. <laughs> So we have a big book, which is, the, it's pure. This is the pure, no cut. Right? Right? I, 
I knew that back row looked suspicious. <laughs> but we take all the stuff that's been stepped on 300 times. Make sense? Now I got you. So I began this journey because I started to learn from my own experience, not what you told me, but from my own experience that once again, my life on self-will will never be a success. And once again, I learned that my mind will trick me over and over and over again. It'll pretty up a junkyard. And I had to make another surrender. I was actually forced into surrender. I was surrendered again in recovery. And that can happen. Our book says uh, uh, um, we recreate our life in doctor's opinion. That's not just one time. Recreating our life is continually, perhaps every day. Certainly when we go through the steps, we're going to have a new experience. And we lay aside what we think we know about the big book, 12 Steps, A and God, for a new experience and an open mind. And we ask God to let us see our truth, perhaps a new truth. Because it's peeling back onions, a layers on an onion. I discovered something that's great, now I have to move forward. The other thing I learned is the truth is true until I find out it no longer isn't. I come in here with a whole bunch of belief systems on who I think I be, what I think AA is about, what I think God is, what I think a sponsor is supposed to look like, and I start to have an experience and I find out it's nothing like that. Because it's all coming from the same mind that knows one thing, get drunk. So if I'm sitting here tonight and, and, and I'm listening to a speaker and I got some other things on my mind, I'm not present. She's not texting, is she? You're not texting, hon, are you? Okay. I got other things on my mind. Which means it's a way of distracting me from hearing a speaker or perhaps a sponsor or just a message that's going to help me. And I think I have thoughts, but they have me. But it's in the bottom, the complete surrender. Plus, uh, trust me, that doesn't feel good, especially when you bottom out in Alcoholics Anonymous. You're part of AA, you're thinking everything's great, and you bottom out once again. Where do I go now? And we keep avoiding the information. We keep avoiding the 12 steps all the time until we get to a place where I'll do anything. That can happen in Alcoholics Anonymous. We begin to recreate our life. It happened to me. That's why I never look down on a drunk, because I know God's not looking down on me. God's not going to see the sin in me. God's going to see his creation in me. God's not going to see the sin in you. He's going to see the creation that he, that he made and have mercy and try to put it back together. But I need to be a willing participant. God can throw out all the seeds he wants, but I don't bite. Nothing happens. It's my free will. We need to be changed. What walked in the door needs to die. And there's greater pain in not changing than the change itself. A grain of wheat falls to the ground has got to be crushed in order to have food. Otherwise, nothing happens. The same thing with me. I walk in here. The whole self has to be grinded into dust. The ego has to dissolve. How far it goes, that's up to God. But the change has to happen. And it's not comfortable. It's a metaphor. Metaf what's the word? Thank you. That happens in here. What an upheaval. But if I'm still the same person that walked in a door, I'm probably not going to last if I hold on to what I think is me when I walk in the door six months later, a year later, I'm probably not gotten, gotten well. So it's about am I willing to be changed from the inside out? And the outside world may get worse. Because I come to AA doesn't mean I'm going to have the job, the relationship, and the car. I might be on food stamps in a week. I might be completely bankrupt in a week. 
But what has changed is how I navigate through that. A drink and a drug is no longer the solution. And I keep returning back to this power called God. And I'm happy on food stamps and I'm happy making six figures. My, the rearrangement has happened within. What I become gets dissolved and what God created comes to fruition and we become pillars of our community. We become the foundations of our family little by slowly but on God's time, not on my time. And I go through the first few steps and I get to look at me on paper. I can't deny what's on paper. I write out my first step or even discuss it. Some of us discuss the first step with the sponsor. We can't deny what we're saying. We can't deny what's on paper. I love putting pen to paper because it's in black and white. You can't get around that. And I start to look at myself, my bedevilments, all the manifestations of the root causes of what's going on. At least identify them and more will be revealed. And step five, I get unhooked from ego, to beginning to get unhooked from ego. And I start to, our book talks about how we may begin to have spiritual beliefs. It might be the uh, spiritual experiences. It's the infancy of it, but we're starting to get connected with God. And we look at six and seven, there's the shift that happens. We're willing to give up everything back to God to be made new, completely new after coming out of five. There's a shift that happens. And again, we may not even feel that until we're in step nine. May not feel that until 10, 11, and 12, but it's happened. It's kind of like when you, you plant vegetables, you put the seeds down, and you water it, and you leave it. It looks like nothing, but growth is happening. It's all on the ground. You can't see it. And one day, there it is. So, oh my God. It's happening. At 8 and 9, I get right with you. I connect to other people because I'm out making amends. And God orchestrating the whole thing. And something happens in 10, 11, and 12 where I come to the realization one day, oh, my God, I walk with God. There is no more duality in my life with me and God. There's, in fact, there's not me and anything else. Everything is God. My car is God. My job is God. My money is God. Everything. And we start to even get clearer and I start to recognize the God in you, the spirit in you. And how could I get upset with you and angry if I do have to do inventory because what I'm saying is God made a mistake. Now, if someone's acting sideways, I correct it. If someone's behaving inappropriately, I will correct it the way it's been done for me. But to criticize or condemn that person, I'm telling God, you made a mistake. I got a better blueprint. How dare I when I came in here completely upside down and people put, them, put me back together little by slowly. It was the touch of the master's hand. That's what we get to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's why I get upset when people text at a meeting or cross-talk during a meeting, make phone calls during a meeting. Because it insults me, it insults the group. It means you really don't care about this meeting. You've got other stuff to take care of. Then go take care of it. Come back when you're ready. Not when I got 50 drunks fighting for their life, but you're special. You're not ready. Okay? So who I go after or who are the sponsors? I get off on a, get on a soapbox here. I don't blame a newcomer for texting during a meeting. They don't know better. I don't blame a newcomer for trying to 13-step someone in a meeting. They don't know better. <laughs> I want to know who the sponsor is. And if they don't have a sponsor, we go to the elder statesmen in the group who roll over when that stuff goes on. Because those of us who have been around, been around a while have to look out for the new people to teach them. Because if no one teaches them, we have Ringling Brothers, Bonham and Bailey Circus in AA. Right? And sometimes we're not going to be like for doing that. I didn't like any of my teachers when they got right in my grill and confronted me. I loved them for doing it. I have no problems doing it because we can't lie to a drunk. Because if we roll over, we're just as guilty as they are. We got to stand for something or fall for anything, huh? 
So I find a sponsor and I start this work. Not knowing where it's going to take me, but little by slowly I start to notice I'm not thinking about drinking. Little by slowly I get a job and I have money at the payday. Each payday I have some money from the last payday in my pocket. Then I have a little apartment and things are starting to shape up. And I'm starting to get some self-respect. And I didn't even plan it, but prayer became really important to me. I've said this a bunch of times. Prayer is the most important event that's going to happen in our life for today. There's nothing that comes close to that. That includes taking care of my relationship and my children and my job and my health. First thing is, is God, because without it, all that stuff, I lose anything. Anything I put before God, I'm going to lose. It's God who's given me the relationship. It's God who's given me my children. It's God who's given me a job and money. And God who has removed those things as well. And I, I thank my Heavenly Father for everything he's removed from me. Thank God I did, he didn't. Thank God he removed it, because half the things I thought I needed would have killed me. You know, like that relationship, I need that relationship. Oh my God, I can't live without them. Then they go and they say, thank God. <laughs> There's a great story. This, author, this gentleman, Jesuit priest Anthony Mello says he was doing a session uh, and this woman came up to him and she was brokenhearted, crying hysterical. We broke up, he left me, I don't want to live anymore, I'm going to die. And he gave us some suggestions. And about a year later, she said, I want you to meet my husband. And she was joyous, happy, and free. And he said, well, what happened like a year ago? What was going on there? The mind took over. When we're right with God, something happens when we're right with God. We reconcile with the world that we think rejected us. We reconcile with ourselves when we rejected ourselves. We reconcile with God when we rejected God. There's a reconciliation, a healing, and a regeneration that happens when we walk with God. Because there's no more duality. I am with my Heavenly Father just as much as you are, drinking or not. We get oneness, no more two-ness with this power called God. But it's not going to happen by just going to AA meetings. If it does, perhaps you're not the alcoholic they describe on page 21. You might be just a moderate, hard drinker, bless your heart, come to meetings, get a little quick fix here from the great camaraderie and the sacredness of our fellowship. We get jacked up at a lot of meetings, and we go about our day. What a great meeting last night. Great. But if you're the real deal, after a while, that blade gets really dull. And we need to get something. What happens is we finally find the big book sponsor and go, why did I do this for it? I can't believe I got involved with a sponsor now. Because they're going to hold us accountable. And we'll get uncomfortable. And every time we get uncomfortable going through the, going through the work, it's great because we're about to break through another wall. Tension is the surface of spiritual truth. So when I'm going through the work and I'm feeling really tight in my fourth step, God's about to push it through another wall. Needed. And we're going to get uncomfortable with it. If we don't get uncomfortable going through this work, we're probably sociopaths. Yeah, there's going to be remorse. There's going to be guilt. There's going to be anger. There's going to be frustration. We're coming to terms in black and white. What we have done based on self will run riot. It's needed. We see it, and then it'll die. If not, we're walking around deaf, dumb, and blind. God gave us eyes to see and ears to hear. Huh? But it's the first time for me when I got into AA and got into the book that I really heard and I really saw and I didn't speak much, because when I'm talking, I can't hear. So I start to listen to the elder statesmen in AA and women. I was brand new, and a friend in Minnesota gave me a couple of tapes. For you new people, we actually had cassette tapes, no CDs. There was cassette tapes you put in a big machine, remember? 
And uh, it was this woman, because uh, I thought only men had the message. Only men, AAs for men. And there's a woman named Polly P, and I listened to this woman. She's an icon in AA. And she spoke on this tape, never met her, and I cried. Because what she spoke of was truth and her ups and downs in recovery and obviously drinking, and I locked into her. She was a hero. I never even met her. She didn't know who I was. Another man, the gentleman was a guy, Chuck R. from Minnesota, who I spent time with this weekend. Just cassettes. Listen to them. It resonated with my spirit because I was listening. I was seeking. I was looking for that city up on a hill and a lamp on a lampstand. I wasn't deaf, dumb, and blind. That was God ripping me open. I was desperate. Who's giving me a message? Right. This past weekend, I was in Minnesota uh, to give a talk. And uh, I went from uh, Amityville, Long Island, uh, with 10 days of treatment behind me, out to, to Minnesota, St. Paul, and the Twin Cities, and a little town called Hastings. And I did uh, treatment in Halfway House, Three Court House, and Sober House, and lived out there for a while. And that place uh, put me back together. In fact, when Minnesota calls, as long as my calendar's open, I don't care what's going on in my life, I go. Just to give back, because they put me back together. And I got to visit uh, the old places that I went to in recovery in Minnesota this weekend. So I gave a talk, and a bunch of folks thanked me, but I was so forever grateful to them for what they did. And God has given me that to remember where I come from in the recovery life. And still has given me, because it's not coming from me, a sense of gratitude for those people. My first hero was there, Chuck R., uh, belongs to the Three Legacies group that I talk of often, and he's still there. He's still there with about eight billion years sober, you know, just sitting there, greeting new people, still on service, and doing what he does, looking for a new drunk. Sober, many, many, many years. His health is failing, but Friday night, he's there. And someone walked me in and said, there's Chuck, and he knew who I was, and introduced me to his little posse of guys. Some guys were sober 40 years, some guys were brand new, but there was Chuck right in the center of AA. Those are my heroes. The Polly P's are my heroes. The Bob B's are my heroes. My sponsor, Mark H. and Don P. These are, here, these are journeymen in Alcoholics Anonymous. They're not here to get a date. They're here to get sober and be of service, whatever it takes. And some of the people who make coffee doesn't get applauded. We thank them for doing that. The guy who put the key in the door tonight so we can have a meeting, we thank him for that too or her for that. This is, is, you know, this is easy. Those folks got the work. And I got to visit Minnesota. And uh, I, I, you know, there was a few times in my car I was driving alone and I wept. Out of gratitude, not sadness. I wept. Because I looked at some of the old spots I was driving by, the old treatment center and the old meeting places and just places that come back to you. And I remember the condition I was in 25 years ago. I didn't have a clue. Now, when we have 60, 90 days, we think we got all the answers to the planet. We think we know everything, right? <laughs> then you look back and you say, I didn't, I didn't know anything. And I didn't know anything. I have some motives that were pretty shabby back then. Thought they were good. And they said, keep coming back. And I got to do that. And I, I had to, me and God, and I had a weeping session with God and thanking him for everything he's given from me and all the stuff he took from me. Because 25 years later, I'm back there visiting with dignity, a little grace, and a gentleman, a sober gentleman, and maybe a spiritual warrior on certain days, huh? Because of Alcoholics Anonymous. So uh, I was humbled by all of it. But it's because of the step work. 
How do I get right with, with people? Because that's my uh, book says we're having trouble with personal relationships. That's where it doesn't, forget how I do in Alcoholics Anonymous for an hour. Doesn't even count. If I'm in treatment or sober living, that don't count. It's when I'm out there. I take this out there. Rubber hits the road. How am I doing in my personal relationships with other? As a man, am I treating women like women or, or, or furniture? How am I doing? How am I doing with my coworkers? How am I doing with people? And it all comes out of my relationship with God. And if I don't go to the 12 steps, I might have a relationship with God. But boy, am I missing so much. Chances are the God I'm praying to is me anyway without removal of self. I think I'm worshiping God, but I'm worshiping me. And prayer isn't the most important event of my day. And amends I can take care of next week. It's not important. I need to get to my home group. I'd rather a newcomer or someone I'm sponsoring be out making amends and attend home group. I'd rather them go 12-step or drunk or take a drunk to the work than attend home group. We have too many attachments on my home group. Live or die, get to my home group. Nonsense. Not when a drunk's in need. Not when the children are in need. Not when I have to write inventory. Because I can't transmit something I haven't gotten. I will what I do, and that's untreated alcoholism. So it's about getting right with people, which comes by getting right with God. And step nine forces me into getting right with you, who I've stepped on for years. I've lied, manipulated, justified, minimized, and rationalized all of it. And step four, I got to see my part. Discuss it in five. The shift happens or begins to happen in six and seven and nine. Says, now go fix it. And so I start with this list, and we talked about this last week. Most of my list is going to come out of step four. It says we made it when we took inventory. Why saw harms caused. But that isn't the list in itself, because more names will be added to that. In fact, every time we go through the work, more will be revealed. When God knows the ground's fertile enough and my shoulders are wide enough, he'll put some more work on for me to do. We don't graduate. It's, it's unending. Chopping wood, carrying water. Chopping wood, carrying water. Going out and serve for God. And truly, if we say we're messengers of God, we're not here to be served, but to serve. And we do it gladly. Who's ever last shall be first, huh? So I go. And God will give us the strength and the courage and the direction to go do this work. Let us walk into shooting galleries. Let us walk into, into bars. Let us walk into the most sordid spot on this planet. If I have a good reason to be there, I go in with God. And I'm coming out with God. And maybe a drunk. And then God is pleased. And I sleep at night. And sometimes it's an inconvenience, but I do it. And some of my nine steps, trust me, I didn't want to do them. Some of my amends I did not want to do. I don't like the people. I don't want to go do this. It's humbling when I go do it. I want to hold on to the money. I found that it's not my money, and I need to go do this. And then I got came to a realization one time, I get to do this. I get to go make money. I get to live free. I get to get freer. I get to experience with God. And so the journey began of going out and make amends, and I, I had made about 200 direct eyeball-to-eyeball eyeball amends the first time out. And each time through the work, there's amends to be made, but I noticed that at each time I'd gone through the work, I'd gone through the work a whole bunch of times, there's less and less amends to be made. The first time was I'm making amends because I ripped you off. Physical abuse, verbal abuse, first time through the work. The last time through the work, my biggest amends was going back to my church and becoming a church member. Some of the amends are why I was told you I was going to be there and I couldn't be there. And I never called you. It's like that. It's changed. 
because I'm able, because of God and AA, go through my day and never intentionally hurting anyone. I'm not looking to cut an angle. I'm not looking to be dishonest. It's just the way God made us. In all my brokenness, I don't harm people today. And so the amends list has changed, but the first time out, it was pretty drastic. And um, I will tell you, it was some work. In our big book, it says, how to approach the man we hated will arise. But a lot of us have that man or woman on our list that we still hate. We owe amends, but we don't like them. And for me, it was this landlord. And I always tell this story. I like to share experiences with step nine because they're important in order to teach what this felt like and what it looked like. This landlord, I rented an apartment from him. And uh, when I say I rented, I was technically homeless because I didn't pay rent. My dad paid my rent because I never made rent because I was out running and gunning. But I would tell you I had an apartment. I was really homeless. In fact, if mommy and daddy's paying my rent, I'm homeless. Because if they don't pay rent, where do I live? In the street? I couldn't see that then. I thought I was entitled to have my rent paid. And so um, I had this little studio apartment. My dad furnished it for me. Um, bed, all the little furniture, clothes, shoes and boxes, clothes and garment bags, get me some clothes, get on my feet, get me going, put money on a table, clock, radio, TV, all of it, everything got sold, everything. Uh, my dad stopped paying rent. He heard about this word called enabling. <laughs> Anyone's in treatment knows that word, right? And so he stopped doing that, and uh, I was on a drunk of drunks, and uh, I borrowed money off this landlord, never paid him back, and he tried to kick my door down because I was burning the place down, and, and uh, it, it was a nightmare living in there. I get sober, and I see this guy sitting in a rest, standing in a restaurant, and I'm sitting uh, at a table ordering lunch or whatever it was. It was a Sunday afternoon. And across the restaurant, towards the back, was a family get-together. And there was this landlord. And I despised this man because he spoke to me what I thought was unkind. Almost burned the place down, never paid his rent, tried to rip him off. And he, I was angry because he was angry with me. I'm a nice drug addict, right? Um, and uh, he was eyeballing me from across the restaurant. And he was talking to some guy, and the sweat was pouring off my head. My heart was beating. And I told, uh, uh, I was my wife, or we were in the process of getting married, I got to get out of here. Just tell the waiter we're leaving. And I walked out, and I was shaking. And I called my sponsor at the time, and I says, Tony, this is what happened. And he says, well, you'd be talking about you if you saw you at a restaurant. The problem was I was not free. And I was not willing to forgive this person. I was not willing to look at my part clearly enough, clearly enough to get, take stock of me to go fix that and take the bit, as it says, in our teeth. Nothing worthwhile can be accomplished until we're entirely honest with somebody. That's what my book tells me. I had to take the bit in my teeth and go fix this. Like him or not, it's none of my business. I harm one of God's children. And he had a wife and a, and a little child and his wife was expecting. I terrorized them. And not because I'm a tough guy or some violent criminal. I was suffering from alcoholism. We terrorize people. And that's what I did. I held them hostage. You know one drunk could hold his whole room hostage. And that's what I did. So I wrote lots more inventory. And I shared it with my sponsor, and I kept praying for the willingness to forgive, the willingness to go to any lens, more inventory, more discussion, willingness, praying, etc. And God removed all the identities from me that didn't come from him, and I was a drunk who was holding on to anything to stay sober, and this was another knot in the rope, and I better go grab it.
That's what it came down to. I'm no one special because I have so much time sober, whether it was a year or two at the time, whatever it was, two years. And so one Sunday morning I got, uh, got up and I finished my prayer and meditation, I got dressed. Kind of like I am tonight. And I had a sensation, a vague sensation, exactly what was going, because I'm praying all this time, and something came, we need to go see this man. I had an envelope full of money because I was uh, 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 self-supporting to my own contributions now. And I had a bunch of money for back rent, and I went. And I was taught in AA, when you have an appointment to go make amends, you'd be the best copy of this big book you can be because you may be the only cover book they ever read. So I wasn't going to go make an amends looking like I'm about to go commit a felony, go on a run as soon as I'm done. Right? And so I went. And nowadays we have cell phones. Don't go make an amends while you're texting during the amends. Please don't do that. Because I can see some newcomers. Oh, hold on. While they're making amends, I've got to text my friend, tell her I'm making amends right now. Right? <laughs> and so I went. And I knocked on a door, and his wife let me in, and we sat down. And they didn't know what this was about. And uh, I started to make amends. And I was clear with them on the harms I was causing. Their faults are not discussed, ever. My job is not to say, yeah, but if you didn't do this, I wouldn't have done that. In fact, that should be resolved in step four and five. I was there to clean off my side of the street and my side only, regardless of what they did, regardless of the curse words he used at me. Regardless if he threw me out, I'm there to clean up my side of the street. And I was clearing my harms. I said, anything you need to tell me? And they were very grateful for me. They were happy for me. And we had some, we, we interacted a little bit. And I says, I have money here if this covers it for all the back rent, and they were more than satisfied, and they wished me well. And we shook hands. His wife, I remember, gave me a hug, and she kind of got emotional about it because she saw me right before I was homeless. I was in serious, serious trouble here, and uh, I was standing before, bearing witness for her. AA or not, God's handiwork. And I left. And what happened to me afterwards, words will not adequately explain, but I'll try to create a picture like when you give a talk, you try to illustrate what happened. I don't re really remember getting home that day. Because when I left the house, our book says that the most difficult ones turn out to be the most beneficial. It's my book tells me. I didn't know about that until I experienced it. There words on a page until I experienced it. Like a big book is words on a page until you experience it. God is a thought. G-O-D. Got a hundred people in there, a hundred different ideas of God until we have our own personal experience with God, and then all that changes. What I think is true changes when I find out a new truth. Everything changed for me this day because when I left this house, I don't remember getting home. I do remember this. This is going to be difficult to explain, but I'll try. Every time I tell this story, it falls short. I couldn't feel my shoes touching the concrete walking back to my car. It was as if I was walking on air. My eyes filled up and I wept and my whole body was taken over by a light. I was wrapped up in this light, this warm, i never forget this. It just right up. And I looked down and my eyes began to weep and I was overwhelmed with love and gratitude. That's all I remember. It was five minutes later, 20 minutes later, an hour later, I was in my apartment. The rest of it is gone. It was way beyond elation and euphoria. What it was, and I don't, the risk of sounding pretentious here, it was God. I know what Bill Wilson experienced in, 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 the, in the hospital bed. 
when some of the elder, older members would talk about these phenomenal God experiences, and I was new and saying, come on, you're embellishing. No, they're telling the truth, because that's God. There's no limits to God. God's abundance, and it will overwhelm us. Many of us who've had real God experiences are brought to tears. It's that powerful. Not tears of sorrow, tears of joy, overflowing of God. That's what happened to me on an amends. I says, no way I'm going to go see this man. The heck with him. I hate him. And God removed all of that because ego was attached to that. The thing about making amends here is that those defects we're asking to be released from, to be free from, when we go make amends, we will see those defects die even further. By taking responsibility and showing my accountability, showing up to your door, and this is what I did to you. My defects drove me to do this. My isms drove me to do this, and I'm showing up and shutting it down. And I get freer. If I'm free, I get freer. If I'm free, I'll get freer. Get it? No need to be in bondage. If I'm not current on amends, you will see, I have seen, if I'm not current on amends, how my life is, not, uh, is out of order. I'm walking without integrity. I can't be, integ uh, be in integrity if I have outstanding amends that I haven't made that I'm not making. It's impossible. I'm violating massive spiritual laws. When I know I have an amends to you guys to make, that if I go to you, I'm not going to harm you in so doing. I owe you in a direct amends. It'll be settled when I do, but I got other stuff to do. And I'll get to you tomorrow. My life's out of order. And I'm certainly not current. And if I'm not current, I'm driven by voices of the past and I got fear in the future. I can never be mindful. We forget how God will bring us to it and through it just out of love and mercy for every one of us because he needs us to get well. Why do we place an AA? Why do we get sober? Remember Marion telling me, why do you think we got sober for? There's a reason why we got sober, to make 90 and 90? Because it's all about me and my coins? No, we got sober. We get all of this to go get another one. The, the sheep who's lost from the flock, bring them home. That's what we're supposed to be doing in Alcoholics Anonymous. But I need to get rid of me. I need to get right with you. I need to get right with God to generate the power to go do this stuff. And I've seen us walk into crack houses, uh, shooting galleries, bar rooms, abandoned buildings, and pull out a drunk, safe and secure. That's God's work. And then we start to see the God in everyone else. I don't care what they smell like, what they look like. It may not be pleasant. The work isn't pleasant. We're going to get dirty. And those amends are going to be difficult, emotionally pulling, but we do it. The alternative is get drunk. The last thing I asked this gentleman is, anything you need to tell me? I said to him, what, what can I do to make it right? And they were just happy what I was doing. That was right enough. And I made amends to my former employers. But I had to check with my sponsor. With the men's, please check with the sponsor. It's God's timing. God's timing's perfect. My timing's always wrong. We need to seek out with a sponsor. Am I going for the right reasons? Am I supposed to be going to this person? Because we can cause a lot more harm in making amends when we're not supposed to. Because it says, except when to do so would injure them or others. And those people I couldn't go to, or some of those employers I couldn't go to because it might implicate other people, or some relationships that I couldn't go to these women because it would cause harm to the families they were now a part of? What do I do with that? Treat women like ch ch children of God. And I will say, thank God, since I've been in AA, uh, people may say a lot of things about me, and a lot of people may not like me, but no one can say I've ever 13-step or played a woman in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's just not my story. And that was part of the, 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 the willingness to be changed in Alcoholics Anonymous, treat women with respect like they were my sister.
And I can say that without batting an eye, huh? There's change. And I try to treat people that way because the people I couldn't go to, I need to make it right with the universe, I need to get right with Mother Nature. I stole from all my employers. Since I've been sober, I never stole from an employer. I've been taken advantage of by employers. I've been worked to death uh, by employers. I've been lied to by employers, but I don't steal from my employers. I continue working for the glory of God. I find a new job. But retribution is not my business. That's somebody else's business. I'm not getting drunk. So I chop wood and carry water. I, I, I'll share this. I'm, I don't know why I'm getting this. Um, I didn't want to talk about this one, but the most difficult one I've ever had to make was to my dad. He was married to my mom, who was one of us, picked her up, cleaned her up, institution after institution after institution, embarrassment, all of it, being married to this woman. And she dies, and I pick up, right where she left off. And he goes through this with me, embarrassment, picking me up out of the streets, all of it. And I lied to him regularly, stole from him regularly, and I hurt him terribly. His oldest son turned out to be a drunk and a homeless bum. And he had to chase me out to protect his other two sons. I, I was really, uh, I remember cursing my dad out one day, and he could have like, you know, knocked me out, and he didn't. I brought this man, I was sharing this with someone today, my youngest brother, big strappy kid, and my dad, my illness brought both of these men, as a true story, to draw a gun on me. I have no idea what it's like for a father to draw a gun on his own son and say, I'm going to kill you before the drug dealers do it. I'd rather do it and I'll go to jail for it because they're not going to kill you. That's where this brings people to. My brother jumped out of a car around 2 o'clock in the morning on Lower East Side with a bunch of his friends because I called home in a drunk looking to borrow money at like 2.30 in the morning. My brother got in a car with a few of his friends, went down to Lower East Side, Henry Street, and I forget what the cross street is, East Broadway, somewhere down there. Got out of the car and did the same thing. And one of his friends, who was a friend of mine, got in the way of that. Both of them would have wound up in jail for killing a brother, killing a son. That's where this illness brought these two people to who love me. To say all I have to do is not drink and go, and go to a meeting, I'm a winner. Do you see the narrow-mindedness in that? Our book talks about that. I'd have to make amends to me. I've been taken care of. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've got the glory of God. I walk with that. I'm, I'm overfed. But what about the folks who are out there watching all this and doing things they would never dream of doing? Don't drink and go to meetings? I'm sober and that's an amends? No, it is not. Amends is knocking on a door. That's why I don't make amends. I'm knocking on a door with money or whatever it is to make it right. How do I go to my dad? How do I go to my brothers and make this right? And I sat down with my dad one day. My sponsor says, I remember going to him right away. He says, no, not yet. You need to walk this walk. I said, how about, and I said, no, not yet. You need to walk this walk. And I stopped asking. And then one day he says, now. And I prayed. And I sat down with my dad. We were having breakfast one day at work. I said, I need to talk to you. And he said, absolutely. And my dad would always make time for us. After all of this, my dad makes time for me. And I began this approach of making amends. And I had some money to pay. If I hit Powerball this week, I still owe money. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> And I sat down with an attempt. And I tell all the people who come to me, even if you send 10 bucks a month home, it's something I'm recognizing this. 
It's not going to make a dent in our life, but we're taking accountability. It's living in the sunlight of the spirit. Well, God was about to get me right with another person. This person had to be my dad. And as I began amends, my father stopped me right in the middle of mid-sentence. And he said to me words, I'll hold on to ever and forever. And it just spoke volumes for what we do in AA when we're all in, when we're journeymen and women. When the intent is pure, we're seeking God with the desperation of a drowning man or woman. How God will put everything back together and we get to heal the lives of others in AA. We get to heal the lives of others in AA. It's God doing the healing with the instruments to go do it. What my dad said to me was, all I ever wanted was my son back. And he began to crack. And he says he went on to praise Alcoholics Anonymous for the great works you did in giving him a son back. That's why I treat AA as sacred. I'm here to serve, not to get a date. I'm here not for popularity contests, but to serve just for bringing that relationship back. And my dad, the fire was ignited on the healing process. And I went to my brothers and I went to my grandparents and I went to over 200 people. And I gave them their respect back and their dignity back that I ripped off from them. That's what God does. He heals. And I watched their lives start to change. Because they think that's the way it's supposed to be. Another one screwed me over. And then we say, no, I was wrong and I'm here to make this right. Something stops and something begins to change in their life by doing this. And we walk out lighter. We walk out freer and more connected. As I get connected to you, I get right with God. As I get right with God, I'm connected to you. I'm free. I'm not in a place of disease or discomfort with the world around me. I'm not rejecting me. I'm not rejecting God. I'm certainly not rejecting you. But we're going to hold up on amends because I got a date tonight or the game's on. How free do we want to be? If I have outstanding amends tonight that I could be making without causing harm, how come I'm not making it? I got to hang out. The illness is hanging out too. You know, so don't make amends. Don't make amends for this guy Marinelli's nuts. Don't listen to him. He's crazy. He's a fanatic. My sponsor's crazy. Everybody's crazy. I'm right. I was a longshoreman, and I worked on the docks, the Brooklyn docks. Borrowed money from truck drivers and co-workers, and you name it, ripped them off. Did all, all, all the legal activities. And there was a little diner we used to hang out. It was called the Hole in the Wall. And the truckers and the longshore would go in there at 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the morning and do their thing and go to work. And I'd stand outside, and they'd come out, and I'd make the approach. You have a minute for me. A lot of them would back up, what now? And I'd have some money ready, and I'd make the approach. Done. Give me a hug. It's okay, don't worry about it. It's okay, don't worry. Oh, it's no big deal. But now when I would go to work, I wasn't hiding out. I was walking head up and shoulder squared. Fixed it with you, I fixed it with you, I fixed it with you, and I was living the amends. See, if I rob from you and I pay you back the money, it's not okay for me to be a thief again. I was showing up for work on time and leaving when I was supposed to. Then the great thing happened, I'll close with this. My dad wouldn't say anything. We'd be quiet, he just watched. Like, I, I do the same thing, I watch, I'm an observer, I watch, I watch, I watch, I watch. My dad did the same thing. I think he was afraid to say anything to spoil what, what he was witnessing. But some of the guys at the job, longshoremen, truckers, they would say, your old man raves about you. All he does is talk about my son, my son, my son. He's so happy, so grateful, so proud of you, those are the things they used to say. I said, kid, whatever you're doing, you go to that double A place, keep going. Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah. It was healing. Out of the woodwork came these other workers who were saying, I have a nephew, I have a niece, I have a son, I have a brother who has a problem. Maybe you can take him to that place you go to. They all start coming out. And that was my job. And I did that at work. I was taking people to meetings for about two years. And God says, okay, I got another place for you to go work. And I got involved in a treatment center business, which I was kind of having my foot in anyway. And then one day was the icing on the cake. July 14th uh, is my belly button birthday. And I'm working. And all these longshoremen. These are guys I ripped off and, and never showed up for work, but I paid everyone back and I was working. I was chopping wood and carrying water. And we worked out of what looked like toll boots when you go pay a toll. It looked like little outside offices. And I come back from lunch one day, and it's my birthday, and I'm just going about my business. And uh, they, a PD, they used to call me, come on over here for a minute. And I said, oh, what now? I'm in trouble again. What did I do this time? And they called me over. There's about a whole bunch of them huddled up in this booth. And they had a donut, uh, uh, like a brownie, with a candle in it. This was pitiful, because seven, eight longshoremen singing happy birthday was bad. <laughs> but they sang happy birthday. And they gave me a kiss on the cheek and a big hug and pats on the back. I knew my life changed again. People were giving me respect and showing in their way, that tough guy way, a little bit of love. They took time out to do that. Silly little brownie with a candle in it and embarrassed themselves by singing happy birthday. Yeah. I was part of the crew again. And all I could think of was thank you, God. And also thank my old man. It's been on my mind a lot. Uh, my old man, because if it wasn't for the courage, strength, and direction that God gave him to stay with me, you'd certainly have a different speaker here tonight. So with all the mistakes he made, I still love him for everything he's done. I love his mistakes. I love all the good things he did because he's loved me for all my mistakes and all the good things I didn't. That is just simply God. Huh? That's all I got. Peace.